What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which you may have heard gave birth to the gay liberation movement. For comment, we turn to Martin Duberman. He's a pioneer of LGBTQ studies, the author of two dozen books. In The New Yorker recently, Masha Gessen called him a national treasure. She noted that he's 87, but he's writing faster than ever. He published a novel last year. This year, he's produced a volume of memoirs, as well as a provocative new book titled, Has the Gay Movement Failed? Gesson says that book packs enough information and ideas for four or five more. And he's also a contributor to The Nation, where he wrote about the Stonewall anniversary. Martin Duberman was also a teacher of mine a few years ago. We've done a few of these conversations. Marty, welcome back, and congratulations on the new book, or books, I mean. Congratulations on the new books. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Well, you wrote the book on Stonewall, literally. You call it the emblematic event in modern queer history. And you say it's an empowering symbol of global proportions. And yet, you open your new piece for the nation. It hasn't turned out the way some of us had hoped. Please explain. Over, over the years, Stonewall has, has become a symbol for a great deal that was not apparent back in 1969 when the riots took place. What, what I was referring to was... The fact that in the immediate aftermath of the riots, a whole new generation of young activists uh, appeared on the scene. Some of them have been active in, in other uh, social justice movements before the riots, but they, they now formed new organizations, uh, new organizations devoted to, quote, gay liberation. The first and most radical was indeed called the Gay Liberation Front, GLF. And GLF, to me, represents something of an ideal agenda for what might be accomplished if various minority and oppressed groups could ever get their acts together and combine their forces What has happened to the gay movement in the 50 years since GLF is what I find more than a little alarming and is the reason for my having written that book you referred to, namely, Has the Gay Movement Failed? So the Gay Liberation Front, you say, did something few of us ever attempt. I'm quoting now, they named what a better society might look like thus establishing a standard by which to measure the alternating currents of progress and defeat. What was that vision of a better society, and how is it different from what gay politics advocates now? It was different in that the the canvas was far broader. Probably as early as the mid-'70s, the gay movement became essentially a single-issue movement, devoted to gay uh, civil rights for 
what we now call LGBTQ people, what we then called gay and lesbian people. But GLF in the early 70s had an agenda that uh, went far beyond the immediate interests and needs uh, of gay people themselves. They denounced everything from American capitalism and American imperialism to monogamy, the nuclear family, and the gender binary, though back then uh, that term gender binary was was not in use. So uh, it, it stands in really quite stark contrast to the gay movement as we have come to know it from roughly the mid-70s down to the present day. I, I, should, I should add, though, that in the present day, there has been a real resurgence among the newest generation uh, of LGBTQ folks, uh, a, re- a resurgence of broad concern with the, the assorted social justices uh, of, of our society. A lot, of, a lot of this currently is still manifesting on the local level. So you have groups like SONG uh, in Atlanta. Uh, SONG stands for Southerners uh, on New Ground. But they are very much concerned with issues relating to gender and sexuality, but also they include any number of of the changes which GLF some 50 years ago had advocated. And what do you make of the accomplishments and victories of the past 50 years of gay politics? Perhaps you remember it was not easy to win marriage equality or get gays in the military. Something like marriage equality wasn't even remotely on our horizon back then. What we were concerned with, if we were going out, say, for an evening on the town, was whether or not there would be police entrapment and we'd end up spending the night in jail. I mean, even the few gay watering holes during the summer, like Fire Island, which is an island off of Long Island, there, there was one and then subsequently two primarily gay communities. Uh, and even out there, these were supposedly our places where we, we could finally, as it were, let our hair down. On the dance floor, uh, same-sex couples were not even allowed to touch. And to make sure that they did not, an employee of the the hotel in that community was stationed on top of a ladder with a <laughs> oh, flashlight, man. Oh, man. Uh, and he would shine it down on couples on the dance floor, making sure that there was significant space mm. between the two people. And then at, at, at night, the big cruising ground in, in, say, Cherry Grove, was the boardwalk, uh, a dark area, badly lit. And what, what would happen there on a very regular, really even nightly basis was that the police in the Long Island town uh, directly across from Fire Island called Sayville, the police would dress up their 
youngest, hottest cops in sort of the gay uniform of the day, which would be T-shirt, chinos, loafers, and they would send them over to cruise the boardwalk with the established purpose uh, of entrapping any gay man who approached them and tried to strike up a conversation, though it was often the undercover cops who would begin the conversation in order to meet their quota for the evening. (laughs) And then, and this is hard to believe today, but once, uh, say, an undercover cop uh, said said to this this, uh, gay guy, who had say hi, how are you, and uh, and had immediately handcuffed him. When the gay guy, you know, agreed to take a stroll, uh, he would then take the gay guy down to the pier, where there was a big pole, and would handcuff him to the pole, Ugh. and then go back on the boardwalk for his next prey. Ugh. And then at dawn, when there were you know any number of gay men, literally chained to a pole. Uh, in the dock, they would send for the police launch, and they would all be brought to a kangaroo court, sentenced, the crime published in the local newspaper, and very often what followed in train was the loss of an apartment and the loss of a job. Mm. So yes, that's a long-winded way of saying there has been a lot of change, and a lot of very welcome change. I don't mean to poo-poo any of that. It was all highly necessary and highly desirable. But it has come at a cost. Uh, And I don't think the cost is very often recognized or even believed in. I think the large majority of gay people think that it has been an unbroken story of of progress and that for all that we have gained, we haven't been forced to surrender anything in return. But from my point of view, we have, in fact, surrendered a great deal. You say gay people have surrendered a great deal since Stonewall. What do you mean? We have surrendered the distinctiveness of who we are, both individually and as a subculture, if you draw the analogy with black America, you know, I'm always reminded of the line from James Baldwin, which, which was something like, I don't understand why we continue to beg to rent a room in a house that's burning down. Why don't we just build our own house? And I think that analogy holds in terms of the gay community. That is, we, we keep pleading to be allowed in. And the essence of that plea is, look, we're really just folks. We're exactly like you. We hold your values. We share your dreams. Only difference between us is this really insignificant matter uh, of the fact that our lust and love tend to go toward people of our own gender. What's wrong with the argument, we're just like you? To me, that's extraordinarily simplistic and perhaps even deluded, because there are many ways, and GLF pointed to them long ago in the early 70s, 
in which we are culturally different. And beyond even that, those ways in which we are different are not only important to us or should be, but potentially are important to mainstream heterosexual America. That is, if the mainstream was ever willing to open its ears to what we have to tell them. You say, if only the mainstream would listen to us, what would you tell the mainstream if they would listen? We, we have a lot to say about all kinds of things, including friendship and the nature of romance and the, the non-satisfactions of monogamy, etc. It's a double-edged problem as I see it. It, it isn't only that the mainstream isn't willing to listen or doesn't even know that there's anything to listen to. They don't know in part because the gay mainstream isn't telling them that we have anything special to contribute of relevance to them, not simply as part of ourselves. You're a historian. Do you have any insights or lessons from other uh, liberation movements in the American past? Since I started as a historian of the anti-slavery movement and, and of the institution of slavery, that, that's the analogy I often go to. What, ha what happened with that movement, which I think is directly relevant, is that, you know, a few radicals in Boston, like William Lloyd Garrison preeminently, in the 1830s, announced publicly that slavery had to be abolished immediately and without compensation to slave owners. And for that wholly unpopular view, Garrison himself was very nearly lynched by a mob. But the radicals of the anti-slavery movement, though in that case they stood their ground, right up until and through the Civil War. They, they never changed the nature of their demands. But what did change was the way in which the general population focused not on what the abolitionists had been calling for, namely the immediate emancipation of the slaves, but rather settled for what became the Republican Party which was based on the principle of no further extension of slavery into the new territories. And I think that that same kind of pattern, I mean, if you look at the women's movement, you know, the broad-gauged agenda of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 gets watered down by the early 20th century into the single-issue suffragette movement, and the broader demands that feminism had once represented uh, are lost. And it seems to me that very much the same sort of thing has happened with, with the gay movement. Martin Duberman wrote about the undelivered promise of the gay liberation struggle for The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Marty. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Sure.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.